In Luke chapter 9, and you can find this happening in the parallel passage in Matthew 16, Jesus takes a moment of self-assessment with his disciples. He's been doing a lot of ministry work. And he asks them who the crowds say that Jesus is. And the disciples answer, well, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and still others one of the old prophets back from the dead. Jesus then asks them directly, these people, who, these men who've been following him up close and personal, who they think Jesus is. And Peter answering for the disciples says, the Christ of God. Or in Matthew's version, he says, the Christ, the son of the living God. And in response to this confession, Jesus tells them what it then looks like practically to confess and believe he is the son of God. Here's what he says in in Luke chapter nine. And he said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory, in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Okay, so to truly confess that Jesus is the Son of God is also to confess that his way of life is the way life should be lived and therein to pursue it. So confession of who Jesus is and following in his way of life go together. They are, in fact, inseparable and function as the the social parameters of Jesus's people. And this, of course, doesn't resonate very much. It doesn't resonate very much when whole cultures are, are deeply influenced by Christianity and where most people think of themselves as Christian without much consideration of what that actually means. It's why many people in our part of the country have have no idea what it means to call Jesus the Christ, let alone no intention to walk in his ways, even when they call themselves Christians and they they can rattle off a, a, frankly, a a dumbed-down version of the gospel. And Jesus says in Luke 9, to be his disciple is to take up your cross daily, daily. That is, we daily die to self and live to God. We daily seek to love our neighbors. We daily fight against our selfishness, our self-centeredness, and seek to grow into maturity, following in the way of the master. And all of this, every last bent of this of this ethical ethical teaching is because God has loved us with a steadfast, never-ending, always faithful love and has made us his people. So taking up your cross daily earns you nothing. It earns you nothing, of course. There's no reward. There's no prize for doing it. No, it's a response of love to God's own love for us. And that's what this sermon series is actually been about. If I could boil down every single sermon to just one thought, just just one thing, it's this. It's learning to crucify our selfish impulses daily in response to God's love for us because we love him. And as Jesus points out, what we 
have actually gained by getting everything. I mean, what, what would we really gain by getting everything we thought we wanted only to lose our lives because we responded to the wrong God? That's the question. Who are we responding to? And today's passage is a continuation and it's a deepening of Jesus's thought of what it means for his disciples to love one another. I'm sure you know this passage well. We're going to start in verse 12 of chapter 15. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to Christ for it. Let's go again in prayer to him. Heavenly Father, we pray that this time would be good. We pray this every single Sunday. I pray it again, that this would be a good meditation on your word, that the spirit would be at work so that we might see Jesus, that we might hear from him, that we might be conformed to the life you would have for us because we love him and that our love for him would grow in its depth. We pray all of this in his name. Amen. So Jesus begins this section by repeating again that his disciples must love one another. And you have to start thinking that either the disciples were really dumb or maybe Jesus is trying to force a point home. I mean, this is clearly of central importance to Jesus. And let's let's just follow. I just want to review, right? Let's just follow how many times Jesus has said something along these lines since the start of his final teaching here in John chapter 13. Just just listen. He says, as I've washed your feet, so you should wash each other's feet. That's 1315. Remember that scene where he washed his disciples' feet. He says, as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's 13 verses 34 through 35. Whoever believes in me will do the works that I do. That's 14, 12, and it's exactly the same thing he taught in Luke chapter 9 about confessing him as as Lord and daily taking up your cross. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. That's 14, 15. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. That's 14, 21. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. 14, 23. Abide in me, and I in you. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him. He it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. That's chapter 15, verses 4 and 5. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Love, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. That's John 15, verses 8 through 11. We're halfway through the teaching, by the way. 
That's 11 different times, if I counted it correctly, over three chapters, or really just, yeah, three chapters in which Jesus repeats this thought, and, it, and it's, not, it's not even including the thoughts where he talks about those who claim to be his disciples, but don't obey him or keep his word. So clearly, Jesus thinks that, that what sets his people apart as belonging to him are, of course, confession of him, but it's lives lived in conformity to his. And this isn't unusual, by the way. It's not unusual. Every god, whether it's Baal or Artemis or you know, some modern political ideologies, they demand a particular way of life. With Jesus, we serve as he served. We pursue God's laws as he pursued them. We love him and love each other as he loved the Father and his disciples. We pursue God's kingdom first as he did. And now with verse 13, he gives even more depth to the command. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And of course, this was precisely what he was getting ready to do for his disciples and his people on the cross. You see, as Jesus teaches it here, true love is not sentimental. It is not even necessarily emotional, though of course emotion and sentiment can be there. Love is not merely warm, fuzzy feelings. I mean, after all, do you think the Good Samaritan had the warm fuzzies for the Jew he helped? I don't think so. No, love is most often demonstrated, not by feelings, but by the willingness, the commitment to lose yourself for the sake of another with no apparent reward it to you. Love always asks what's in it for him. See, for example, if, if you were to ask a pregnant woman if she would be willing to lose her life and childbirth for the sake of her baby, I think the answer most likely is going to be yes. Why? The risk of her life would be worth the life of her child. She gains nothing. She gains nothing personally by her love, but her child gains life. That's how love works. And as big as a mother's sacrifice may be, and it's huge, Jesus is after something, believe it or not, even deeper. Consider what Paul says in Romans chapter five. He writes, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you know, think of it this way. Would we expect a mother to choose for her child? Yeah, I think as Christians, the answer is, is yes. But would we willingly die for, say, a Mother Teresa-type person? You know, someone who has given their life in service of the poor, someone who's, who's pretty righteous. Maybe. Maybe we would, maybe not. We certainly would probably have some caveats, maybe some questions we'd want to ask. Would we risk everything we have for the sake of someone we've known to be a, a pretty good person? Risk everything? Maybe if it was a kid who's looking at the whole life ahead of them, 
But what if it was just like, you know, some 60-year-old white dude? Nah, probably not. Probably not. Jesus laid down his life for neither the righteous or the good, but for the ungodly. And in the context of his teaching here in John, for his disciples who would soon abandon him. I mean, think about them. They were weak. They were sinful. They were slow to be faithful. They were slow to figure it out. They were not good for very much. And he loved them to the very end, laying down his life for them and by extension for us who were very much like the disciples as well. There is no greater love than this. What was the risk to Jesus? Now think through this. What was the risk to Jesus? Well, everything. What was his reward? He got his people. Do you ever think about that? That's his reward. That's why he did it. He got his people. I mean, the whole story of the Bible is God taking back his creation with humanity right in the center of his fight. He counted the cost. He paid the cost for the sake of us having life. That's the kind of love God wants us to have too. Only the risk versus reward is backwards. It's backwards. See, if Jesus paid everything in order to have the reward of life with his people, we, his people, already have the reward of life forever so that now we can risk everything because in reality, with Jesus, we, we have nothing to lose. See, that mother who gave her life for the sake of her child, her life is not over. She is in Christ. She could lose her life because she already had life and it couldn't be taken from her. And what's more, I believe, personally, she will know her child in the life to come. That's the covenantal faithfulness of our God, that the promise of life, as he said it to Abraham, and as Peter repeated in Acts chapter 2, that's life to come is for us and for our children. Now, will loving like this make us feel better? Will we feel good about ourselves or have the satisfaction of knowing that what we did was right? Maybe, but maybe not. That mother's husband, for example, will feel a tremendous amount of pain and loss despite his wife's bravery. It will be bittersweet. See, the world approaches morality completely from the position of benefits. What do I get for doing the right thing? And, you know, you've seen the ads, right? Give to this cause, march in this protest, take a hard stand, and you will be confirmed as a good person, and you can feel good about your goodness. But that's not how things tend to shake out in reality at all. It's, it's like those who have lost their jobs for telling the truth. Doing what is good and right can be awfully painful and leave us wondering if the sinful path wouldn't have been better at least in the short run. I mean, honestly, you know, I often feel awful and conflicted for saying hard truths to people, especially when they don't want to hear it. And I rarely, if ever, benefit from it. No, you know, in every respect, we have nothing to gain from loving as Jesus commands because there is nothing to gain from it. No, through his love, we have already gained everything. We already have life with God, and it cannot be taken from us. 
Can we love then just as, as God loves? Well, no, of course not. Our love is only half-hearted and, and tinged with sin. That was our whole confession of sin earlier. But still, still, he calls us to pattern our lives on his. As I have loved you and redeemed you, so love the Lord your God with everything you've got and love your neighbor as yourself. That is repeated all over scripture, right? And it's worth asking why. Why does both the Old Testament and the New Testament pair love of God with love of neighbor so consistently? Why is this the summary of the law? Why does Jesus keep saying, if you believe in him, then you will live like him? Well, as Justin Lonas points out, and, and you can see this with, for example, the book of James or John's first letter, what you worship, what you worship will shape how you love. It's why the warnings about idolatry in the book of James and First John, let alone really the entire Old Testament, are tied to loving your neighbor. See, those who love idols or false gods, and again, this could have been the gods of ancient Egypt or, I don't know, the new religion of apocalyptic environmental activism. Those who, who worship false gods use their neighbors instead of loving their neighbor. That's important. They use their neighbor instead of loving their neighbor. It's the difference, for example, between love and lust, between sacrificing your desires for the sake of someone else versus using the other person to fulfill your desires. So choosing the way of Jesus may result and you facing the choice of literally losing your life, but more than likely, it's the less dramatic daily dying to self, which is made much harder in our culture of immaturity where we are constantly being told to get what we want when we want it and to make ourselves first. So one of my my favorite war movies is Saving Private Ryan from 1998. I love that movie. And it begins with the D-Day invasion at Normandy, which I just cannot imagine those men and how they did that. And it follows after that a small group of soldiers as they go looking for just one soldier, a Private Ryan who is to be sent home. And the entire movie is geared around the question of who is worthy of such heroic effort and sacrifice. And of course, the answer is no one. And as this philosophical question is being played out amidst violence and death with one young man after another giving his life for the sake of a man he doesn't know and he doesn't care about, there's Corporal Lupin, Corporal Lupin, a translator who is a late addition to the group. And in a critical climactic scene, he has the opportunity to save the life of Private Mellish but he freezes in fear and cowardice, and instead he listens to Mellish die at the hands of his enemy. And it is a gut-wrenching scene. And as the audience, we, we instantly hate Upham for his refusal to risk his life for his brother in arms. And we think, you know what? There is no way. There is no way I would do that. There's no way I would not stand and fight. Maybe. 
And as an aside, you know, Peter, who knew Jesus far better than Upham knew Mellish, said the same thing. And in the critical moment, he too refused to risk his life for Jesus. You know, but even so, everyone knows that soldiers are expected to risk their lives in battle. That's the job. It's why everyone naturally gets that Upham is a coward. But Jesus isn't you know, taking, talking solely about you know, dramatic, high stakes, out of the ordinary moments, though he is. You know, things like childbirth or war. No, as he says in Luke 9, we are to daily take up our cross and follow him in our ordinary mundane lives. So, for example, one of the fundamental relationships where this kind of love that Jesus is talking about here, dying for a friend, where it's to be lived out daily, is in marriage. It's why Paul says marriage is a living symbol of the relationship of Christ to his church. It's why Christian weddings purposely symbolize Jesus and the church. Married Christians, you know, by their very presence, should, should point the world to the reality of the resurrected Jesus by the love they have for each other. As Paul says, husbands are to love and sacrifice for the sake of their wives, and wives are to respect and submit to their husbands. Those are gendered, sacrificial, outward-facing relationships of love modeled on Christ's own love. I believe marriage, as, as the Bible teaches it, is intended to do a lot of things. I could go a long time on this, but let me just point out four things quickly. One is to image the triune God by our gendered difference and unity. You see that immediately in the book of Genesis. It's also an image of the relationship of Jesus to his church. That's the second thing. The third thing is that it's supposed to accomplish God's purposes for creation by being fruitful and multiplying and stewarding and having dominion over what God has given us and to do it together. And then fourth, by sanctifying us, by teaching us, that is disciplining us to love as God loves. So in every marriage, the temptation is to use your spouse, shaping them into your own image of them instead of loving them as they are. It's why both husbands and wives chafe against what Paul says in Ephesians 5 about marriage. You know, like Adam, husbands do not want to sacrifice themselves for the sake of their bride. No, not at all. Now, some men, if they think in terms of sacrifice at all, maybe it's more so when they're young, they, they like to romanticize sacrifice by thinking of it in, in sentimental terms like one of my favorite songs, Peter Cetera's 1986 song, The Glory of Love, where he, he imagines himself as a knight in shining armor, taking his princess to a castle far away, but he's not dreaming of her. He's dreaming of himself and what she can do for him. It's why more often than not, men approach women like another song from the mid-1980s by the band The Outfit, Outfield, excuse me. I want to use your love tonight. Some of you just heard that line sung in your head. It's called your love. I want to use your love tonight. And isn't it telling that such a reprehensible song was not only a colossal hit 
it's still in rotation on the radio now. Even in marriage, even among Christians, the temptation to lust, to use your spouse instead of loving your spouse is ever present. The, tri- the picture of love that Jesus has in mind is, it's not a castle, y'all. It's a cross. The knight doesn't triumph in battle. His wife is not an addition to his manly self-image or a means to his pleasure or self-validation. No, he's stripped naked and tortured and left to a slow, painful death in public shame so that his bride will live. It's not exactly shining armor. But Jesus doesn't merely want his bride to live, just as no mother wants their child to merely survive. Paul says Jesus gave his life in order to elevate his bride, to redeem her, to sanctify her. He lives in order to make her better. It's why brides wear white. It's not because they have made themselves pure. It's because Jesus has. Husbands, as as Paul says, are to love their wives in the same way as Christ loves the church, loving them as they would their own bodies. Marriage is the most intimate form of neighbor love there is, you see. Paul says a husband is to nourish and cherish his bride, just as Christ does the church. And the way a husband lives this out practically is by the daily taking up of a cross that seeks not to use his wife. And by the way, a, a man who sees the word submission as giving him the upper hand over his wife has fundamentally not understood Jesus at all. No, but to, to, to love her by pursuing grace and kindness and forgiveness and repentance. It's, it seeks after her needs first, as if he was taking care of his own body. It's taking your wife seriously as an equal, as an image bearer, and seeking to build her up as Christ does his people. It's laying down your life for her benefit. This means then, by definition, that husbands are seeking after Christ in his word and are seeking to live it out with and in conversation with their wives. Now for women, you know, the temptation is obviously different because the genders are different. I know people don't think that anymore, but it's true. The genders are different, but it's no less difficult because the temptation is also to use your spouse instead of to love your spouse. So, for example, the kind of sacrifice Paul commands for wives in Ephesians 5 centers on submission and respect, which, as we all know, are considered taboo. This command, of course, is not unique to women. All Christians are to do this, both to God. In fact, this is the same thing that's in view with the phrase, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs 1.7. It's the same kind of thought. But we are to do this with each other, male and female alike. So in in 521, Paul straight up says, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ before he ever starts talking about gender roles. So for example, you know, I I took vows to be in submission to the brotherhood of the presbytery. I am a man under submission to numerous authorities, not the least of which are other men too. Submission is not taboo, it's beautiful because it's the way of the cross. So submission and respect are every Christian's calling, but just as sacrificial sacrificial love is every Christian's calling, but within the marriage relationship, 
within the marriage relationship, this love is gendered and for women, it focuses on that submission and respect. And it's telling that in our culture, it's considered foolish for a woman to give herself over to a man in just these ways. You can give him your body, but don't give him your mind and your heart. A husband is supposed to earn the respect of his wife and labor to keep it. He has to earn the right to have his wife listen to him and she can revoke that privilege at any time. So in other words, the love as some wives pursue it is conditional. And the women, the woman serves as, as the final judge of when she will choose to submit and respect to her husband and when she won't. It's really no different than how many Christians now approach God himself, you know, picking and choosing when and where they will keep his word. And clearly, that is not what Paul teaches. You know, it is a real act, a real act of self-sacrifice for a wife to both submit to a husband's leadership and to respect him too. If everything in our culture is telling men to use women as vehicles for self-validation or personal pleasure, that same culture is telling women that men are beneath them in a Homer Simpson sort of way. And they should refuse to give respect or assent until they have proven themselves and given you what you want. And even then, it's iffy. So in other words, within the marriage, and you know, I'm not talking about standards for dating or how to pick a spouse. I'm not talking about that. I'm saying, once you've made that commitment and you're stuck, neither side wants to sacrifice for the other. In their sin, they want to use the other to meet their needs. It's why for both men and women, even in Christian marriages, instead of being a renewal of vows, sex is often self-serving or a tool of manipulation. Now, my point is, is that when Jesus calls us to love one another as he has loved us, this is not something reserved only for dramatic moments. It's something we do in every relationship, in every situation we find ourselves. And there's few relationships harder than marriage. You can start doing this today. I dare say you can do it before you've got to the end of the street. And if you're not married, you could easily, as Paul does, extend this to the parent-child relationship or extend it to the, the employer-employee relationship. He keeps on going with examples of how this works. I'm not going to. You can go read it for yourself. If I can't love, think about this, if I can't love in the ordinary moments, especially to people I have publicly committed myself to, then I probably shouldn't expect to love my friends or my neighbors or strangers or enemies either. Now, notice what Jesus says in verses 15 and 16. First, he does not consider his disciples to be his servants but rather to be his friends. And that's a crucial difference. You see, servants, they don't ask questions because they don't, they don't have the privilege of doing that. They, they don't have insider knowledge. They, they carry out orders. They're supposed to be seen, not heard. That's the job. Well, friends of the king, which is exactly what Jesus means here, they can know the heart of the king because the king willingly tells them what's on his mind and why he does what he does now. When Jesus calls his disciples his friends, they are not elevated to the status of the king. It's rather that they've, they're elevated to trusted advisors and confidants. They still carry out his commands, 
It's just that they're now in a privileged position. And, and that's the second thing about this. They're not elevated to a privileged position merely for the sake of having the privilege. That's how privilege often works in the world and why it's such a contentious talking point these days. No, in the kingdom of God, privilege is always for the purpose of service every time. You know, like with Abraham or Israel, Jesus chose the disciples for the sake of bearing fruit. And this is what is so often missed in discussions about the doctrine of election. God chose his people in love so that they will in turn go and be a blessing to the world. The doctrine of election is directly tied up with love one another. And the fruit of that love will, as Jesus says, abide. That is, it will remain, not only in this age, but the age to come. So by keeping Jesus' commands, so think of it, by enduring with one another in love in marriage, for example, which is a relationship intended to bear all different kinds of fruit, by the way, Those actions are not temporary. Their benefit is not temporary. It's living in the age to come right now. So if you ever wanted to know how your good works have any bearing on the future resurrected life, there you go. We don't merely live in light of the age to come, which we do. We are already part of the age to come right now. So by living in conformity to Jesus's life, we we proclaim that Jesus is ruling and his kingdom is at work in the world even now. So, for as long as I can remember, Christians have been talking about the need for revival. As I've most often heard it, it's, it's put in terms of America, as in, we need to pray that this country will turn back to Christ. And that's, that's fine. But what if the revival Christians have wanted, or maybe thought they wanted, is not the kind God is actually giving? What if revival doesn't look like wins in the voting booth, or conservatives on the Supreme Court, or explosive growth of numbers like in a Billy Graham crusade? What if instead it looked like a winnowing of the church where the church lost numbers, but the numbers that remained were more committed to Christ and more faithful to him? What if instead of large buildings and programs to meet every felt need and impeccably designed websites, churches were instead imperceptibly engaging the community and its institutions outside the church's walls? What if the revival was marked by repentance in which whole churches decided to respond to the leading of the Spirit and cultivated the fruit of the Spirit in pursuit of character and conformity to Christ? What if such a revival was happening right in front of us? Would we notice? Or perhaps more so, would we want it? The call to come and die, you see, to take up a cross daily in pursuit of Christ and neighbor in rejection of our selfish desires is not merely a revival God wants to enter into daily with his people, which he does. It's actually a privileged call to service as his friends. And you are his friends. 
You are his treasured people. He has set his love on you. He has chosen you for this great and important work. And as hard as it is, and remember what we said last week, to love God is to struggle with him against yourself. That's what Israel means. What Jesus describes is a privilege, and it is what God actually wants for your life. So what profit is there in getting anything and everything we want if it costs us our souls in the end? It is far better, friends, to live unto Christ even when it appears to cost us everything. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, there is no one who loves as you do. You are a God of steadfast loving kindness and faithfulness. And you have given us this privilege as friends of Jesus to walk in your ways, to fight the good fight in our homes, in the workplace, everywhere we go. And so again, Lord, I pray for us that the kind of revival you may be working in us is one of character, one of which we are willing to fight against our sin day in and day out, turning back to you for grace and mercy, for instruction. Lord, you are good. We confess that. When we forget your goodness, when we forget your love, when we grow tired, please continue to work in us. Move in our hearts and minds, we ask. In Jesus' name.